The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Tiana Kotokatoa ko Simon Day Takuingwa, and I am the commercial editorial director at the Spinoff. Welcome to the bonus episode of When the Facts Change. This month, I spoke to Kiwi Bank economist Mary Jo Vergara about how COVID-19 has affected the New Zealand economy over the last two years, what the pandemic revealed about its strengths and its flaws, and what the forecast for the future looks like. Mary Jo is a guest I've wanted to appear on When the Facts Change for a long time. She's an exciting and vibrant voice in the economy, and she puts humanity into the data she's working with to explain how the forces affecting the economy of Aotearoa impact the lives of New Zealanders. Mary Jo joined the Kiwi Bank economics team in 2019, then just 23 years old, and her unique perspective has helped inform her analysis. During the first outbreak of COVID-19 in 2020, Mary Jo led the coverage of the way women were the worst affected by the economic fallout from the pandemic. It's a subject area she's focused on, and her master's thesis examined how women's economic position in New Zealand has changed over the last 30 years. Our conversation covered a vast range of subjects, but the impact of COVID-19 inevitably touched them all. But Mary Jo is optimistic about the future. However, one red flag from our conversation, if you're going to be buying your Christmas gifts online, you'll need to get shopping very soon. Kia ora, Mary Jo. Thank you for joining When the Facts Change. Kia ora. Thank you for having me. Very excited. So as I prepared for talking to you, I actually realized I don't know what an economist does. Can you explain to me what your role looks like and, and how it works? Yeah, so I sort of see, I guess, three parts to our role. One, it's very heavy number driven. So we have our head buried in spreadsheets most of the time, just trying to understand the meaning behind the data. You know, you hear about a GDP number, you hear about an unemployment number. We're trying to understand the meaning about how that number came about. So it's about understanding how the Kiwi economy hums, what makes it hum. Um, and then, uh, of course, a part of that is also having to engage with you fine folk, the media, trying to articulate what we are seeing in that in that um, in those numbers. You know, the economy is something that everyone is experiencing. We're living in it, but we like to make things look complicated. But in terms of having to convey what these mean, what these numbers mean in a in a digestible way, so it's something that we're all experiencing. But we need to, we just have the job of translating that. You almost have to humanize that data and those numbers to humanize the economy because it is all about people in the end, right? It is. So fundamentally, economics is a social science. It's about the interaction of people between each other and also within the economy. And we just make things complicated with looking at models and and modeling and, and numbers and such. But it's about having to distill that down to what the bare bones are. And I think that's our job as economists is to translate those numbers into something digestible. This time in history, is it a really exciting moment to be an economist or is it quite confronting and scary because of the way that the pandemic you know, has caused so much economic strife that is causing real problems and, and hardship for real people? I think yes to both of that. 
because it's so, if you're just looking at the pure economics of it, it is very exciting. I've had a 30-year career in the span of 18 months. I've seen frenzied financial markets to um, unprecedented policy stimulus to rapid recoveries. And this is something you see in 30 years, but all in the span of 18 months. But again, there's that side of that, the, that this is a real, that, that real things are happening here. You know, an unemployment rate shooting up looks looks dramatic if you're looking at a time series of it but it does have it does mean that people are losing their jobs so it's both um, an exciting time to look at how financial markets are working how the economy is is transforming but it again it has implications in terms of it is a recession we did experience a recession which meant people had lost their jobs people are trying to get back into the market so there is some hurt and some exciting stuff so it's my job has been both exciting and challenging at the same at the same time did you always know that that sort of excitement of, of numbers and the economy and the way that it affects people was something that you wanted to work in? Absolutely not. Um, I actually had in, never intended to study economics, let alone become a bank economist. Um, I wanted to do history and, and classics in high school, but it came to a point where you got to choose your subjects. And I was kind of hiding economics on the list when I was showing my dad and he was like, maybe you should try out economics. He was a big um, fan of US politics and the US economy. I remember seeing Time magazine spread across the house. But then I sort of, I took the subject, sat at the back, had no interest in it. But then it came to the point we had to do a, a test or whatever. And I got top marks for that test and a gummy bear prize. And the look, the final, the final nail in the coffin was the look in the face of the girl who was top of the class. And it was just this stare that was like, oh my God, it's kind of unlocked a, a competitive streak in me. So I eventually became um, really interested in economics, studied it at university. And this love of number just kind of came naturally, I guess, when I was studying a little bit more. Is it the numbers and the sort of data side of it or is it looking at how that actually plays out into the uh, into the real world and the way it affects humans that appeals to you most? It, 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 yeah, it, it is that fact of looking behind the numbers, what makes the unemployment rate rise and what makes the unemployment fall. I like the social science aspect of it, that there are people behind those numbers. Um, that's really what you know, made me interested in the subject that it's not just, it's combining both science and, and the social aspect of it. I think, I think that's actually where I first encountered, uh, your work was a story you published on the spinoff, um, from early on in the pandemic in 2020, where the headline was 11,000 New Zealanders have lost their jobs and 10,000 of them were women. And that was really, really shocking. And as those um, numbers played out over time a little more, the, the impact started to flatten a little bit, but it still saw women were 70% of the job losses um, by November. Why, why did it play out like that? Why were women so disproportionately affected by the initial fallout of COVID-19? Yeah, so it comes down to two reasons primarily. Um, the first one being that women are overrepresented in the service sector. So if you think uh, retail, restaurants, tourism, those those industries, women make up over 60% of sales and service workers and um, over 70% of hospitality workers. So given the nature of the lockdown, having to shut down the, practically shut down the service sector, it's not surprising that women had borne the brunt of those job losses. Um, Maori women, especially in the tourism sector, 
their workforce dropped by 20% in the June quarter alone. So that's big numbers. Um, the second reason is that part-time employment is also a popular option among women, given the flexibility it provides um, to balance both home and work life. But women make up 70% of the part-time workforce. And during that time of lockdown where employers were having to cut down costs, part-time workers are often the first to be have their hours reduced or their employment ended to sort of um, help out businesses at that time. And unfortunately, that meant um, that was another contributing factor to the disproportionate impact of the lockdown on women's employment. What do you think it says about the way our economy is structured and the pressures it places on women within it. It just, I guess, it highlights how skewed women's um, employment is in the in the how skewed women's um, positioning is in the labour market. And this is something that, um, interestingly, has actually helped them in the past in previous crises and recessions. If you think about the GFC and the 1980s restructuring, Rogernomics era, it was most mostly the um, male-dominated industries, finance and manufacturing that had um, experienced all these job losses. So women's employment was relatively insulated back then. But given the nature of this crisis, it is different. And I think it goes to show that the preferences of women's occupation preferences and career choices hasn't changed too drastically over the past 30 years. Um, We saw a lot of women move into law during the 1970s, move into even into finance, but um, we still have sort of sticky occupation preferences, what's typically um, considered a woman's role, what's typically considered a a man's um, occupation is still very much sticky in terms of the past 30 years. When I think of an economist, um, I often think of basically old white guys. Um, Do you think the fact that you're a young woman helped you lead the coverage on that particular issue around the effect of the pandemic on on women? I'm not sure if that was the the reason behind it. I I had actually um, done my thesis on the economic status of women since the 1980s. So before the numbers had come out, I had a feeling that um, we would see this disproportionate impact understanding the, the labour market and the, the scope of the labour market. So I guess I was just the first one out of the gate having understood that this would be an issue. But um, it is true that I'm not, I don't look like the father of economics. If you kind of had a mugshot of all the bank economists in New Zealand and you looked at mine, mine does look different in more ways than one. Um, and I actually didn't notice it when I was studying economics. We always had a good balance of both gender and ethnicities, it wasn't, and I think that's a testament to how far this our, our discipline has come. You know, it's not the 1970s when Janet Yellen was the only female in her doctoral class at Yale. Um, we've come far, far from there. But it wasn't on, until I started at Kiwi Bank and having to engage with media that I started to notice the differences, I guess. And I remember talking to our comms team one time and they were saying how media, with TV especially, were looking to be more diverse in the people that they um, interview, which naturally meant more opportunities for me. And I didn't really know how to feel about that sort of tokenism. I think this representation matters because we're seeing um, younger generations kind of slip in their participation in economics. I was reading a study about from the Reserve Bank of Australia, and they were saying how while the interest in economics has is just as much as previous generations, the participation in the study 
is actually dropping away, especially among young women. So I think this representation sort of does matter. And I think while the tokenism feels frustrating, it is also an opportunity to have a different viewpoint and a different perspective on the world come forward when it is a different type of face that's being uh, asked these questions. Mm. It does. It, it does give me opportunities. Yeah. It, I've sort of looked at it in a way that it's made me sort of step up my game and given me, you know, this platform to, to speak about issues that you probably wouldn't usually see. Looking forward to 2022 and beyond, the spinoff has actually already published its Christmas gift guide, which I think is uh, an acknowledgement of um, some supply chain issues that we're already starting to experience. How significant is, is that supply chain issue going to be over the next 12 to 24 months? I think it'll be the biggest headwind for the New Zealand economy. Um, and globally as well, are these disruptions to the supply chains. Um, COVID has disrupted practically every aspect of the supply chain from the manufacturing to the transportation. And New Zealand is a small open economy, which means we're reliant on trading with other economies. And I think this has actually helped the fact that we're small and open has actually helped our recovery from the pandemic. You know, as economies have reopened, um, slowly emerged from their lockdowns uh, and demand was on the mend. It's been good for the stuff that we make. So prices for dairy and, and for meat have been rising. So in terms of our terms of trade, our purchasing power, that's it's at an all-time high. But this pandemic has exposed that not only are we small and open, but we're also very, very far away. Um, we're some 18,000 kilometers away from Europe. So it's hard for us to get the goods that we need. And in a time when supply chains are, are being disrupted, so we're very far away. So the cost of shipping has gone up five times over the average cost of the past decade. And so if at a shipping company, it's more profitable for them to keep their trips running between Asia and Europe and the US rather than having to come, you know, 18,000 kilometers all the way down to New Zealand. And so that's going to be difficult for our industries that are already bumping up against their capacity constraints to eke out, you know, further growth given they can't get the materials that they need you can only do as much as you can with the stuff that you have and that stuff that we have is is becoming uh weighed down by the fact that we have these supply chain issues that are ongoing and it's a big problem because of the fact that we have a semiconductor shortage it seemed trivial at the start that we were talking about these little computer chips but they've actually been the primary reason that we've seen that we're going to see a, a drop in um, the projections for global growth this year. So what started to start is becoming quite a very serious issue, both globally and especially for us being so far away. Specifically, what are the industries that are going to be most affected in New Zealand and how is that going to slow our growth? You're hearing a lot from the construction industry. It's hard to get the materials they need. And it's happening at a time when the demand for construction is so high. So there is potential for them to meet this demand, but it's that supply side issue that that's going to weigh down on how much they can grow further in the next few months and construction has been sort of the primary industry that's helped our economy grow um, since coming out of this lockdown. And do we need to be worried about our ability to access sort of smaller consumer goods for, for the Christmas period? Yeah, so we're seeing um, some anecdotes showing how it's going to be difficult to access because of the supply chain issue. It's going to be difficult to get those goods to come to New Zealand. So small businesses 
are, are having to change the way that they their business models in a way that they're limiting what they're bringing in from uh, overseas and keeping more as as stock for the upcoming you know Christmas season when everyone goes out to buy. So they're having to adjust this to this new reality of of the supply chain issues. So it does potentially mean that we have um, limited stock. You know, the shelves might be a bit more bare than usual this time around. But Christmas is also a really busy time traditionally, uh, Christmas and summer for, for tourism, both domestic and you know, in, the, in the old world, international. However, I'm at the point where I've sort of resigned to the fact that we're not going to be going to the South Island over that period. My, you know, my little boys won't be seeing their grandparents down there. How is that going to further burden uh, the tourism sector? And at, at what point, you know, does it become unsustainable to continue like this? Yeah, the summer is going to be another challenging summer for our tourism sector. Um, summer is traditionally peak international tourism season, people come over, come to New Zealand from all over the world to cross us off their bucket list. But we won't have that. And it's hard to make up for um, the lack of foreign tourists. I read some research yesterday that um, it takes 12 overnight trips from a New Zealander to equal the spend of one international visitor. So what the tourism sector needs is, um, you know, those high value international tourists coming and spending the big foreign bucks. But we don't have that again this year. Um, and if we keep our wall around Auckland, um, it just adds further strain to the tourism sector. I remember um, practically every Aucklander leaves um, during the holiday season. I remember I'd stayed two Christmases ago and it was just dead quiet. I had every North Shore beach to myself. But when you don't have that Aucklander move going to Rotorua, you don't have them going down to the South Island. It does put further strain on the tourism sector. Um, we saw that last year because so many of us were moving around and holidaying and exploring our backyard. Um, the tourism sector actually fared much better than we had expected. But when we don't have that, we don't have people moving around, it does you know, add further strain on them. And there's only so many times we can sort of just cycle that money around within the country. You know, you just can't keep going on holiday uh, d domestically, no matter how much you might want to. Yeah, that's very true. So we saw a peak in, you know, people leaving with that. We saw some release of pent up demand last year, everyone going down to the Queenstown slopes, but you can only sort of do that so many times. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? 
Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The other industry that's really at the pointy end of the um, economic fallout is the hospitality sector. What do we do there, especially in Auckland, to help our cafes, bars and restaurants survive through this period and then recover in a meaningful way? Yeah, we've had some really good policies in place last year that really helped to insulate our economy. It's unprecedented policy uh, last year. And I've been a big fan of the wage subsidy scheme, especially. It's to be able to keep your employee attached to the employer has actually insulated our economy, um, insulated the labour market, insulated the economy. And I think because it's continued, hopefully that means that it sort of helps them survive during that lockdown period. Um, what we see, though, is that once we get out of lockdown, that pent-up demand helps many businesses to recover. Um, so hopefully that's what's going to help them recover. But it's during this lockdown period that we need policy perhaps targeted towards hospitality to help them, you know, have their heads above water during this this time. The big uncertainty is how long this lockdown continues. It must be really frustrating as a um, Auckland restaurant owner to, to not quite know what's going to happen in December, which is traditionally a very busy period uh, through this time. Um, really, really tough time for small business owners in the hospitality sector. Yeah, absolutely. The traffic light system, um, I think I'm finally maybe wrapping my head around it. There's a very good explainer on the spinoff.co.nz. If I can't understand it, how difficult does it make it to work with as a economic modeler to understand the impact it's going to have, especially when there are so many unknown factors? Yeah, so forecasting in the best of times is difficult and it's become even more challenging with COVID precisely because of COVID. We just don't know how long it takes for the outbreak to be contained. So every time we're having to forecast, it's to, it keeps getting pushed out and pushed out. Um, the traffic light system, it's it's something. The clarity of it probably is debatable, but it is something, and I think it provides um, some roadmap out of this. But again, it's you don't know how long um, this lockdown will have to last. You know, we may not, Auckland may not be out of this or not until the red zone until December, like you're saying. Um, so we just keep pushing out what this means for the economy. You know, we, we're expecting a drop in economic activity for the September quarter, um, but we had assumptions that this would all be contained by the end of it. But because that hasn't been the case, it does weigh on future growth. So we're having to push out our expected rebound until, you know, this, this quarter will be much weaker than we had initially thought the rebound might not come till, you know, next year. Um, so precisely because of COVID, it's been difficult to forecast what this means for the economy. 
Do, do all the bank economists sort of have a shared chat group where you're uh, comparing whose forecasts were the best and sort of scoring points against each other? Is it is it, is it competitive like that? I think it is. I mean, you, you it's fun being at the lockdowns where you go to Stats NZ lockdowns and you kind of have ASB on one side and Westpac on the other side. Um, and I, I, can, I can kind of feel it because I'm kind of competitive like that. But... Um, there are channels that kind of record who's first place and second place. And you just kind of, um, our forecaster, I'm learning from one of the best forecasters in New Zealand, Jeremy Couchman. He's got a proven track record. So we're a pretty good team. <laughs> Jeremy Couchman was on the last episode uh, of When the Facts Change with Bernard talking about uh, the historic housing deal. So please do go back and uh, listen to that. So I'm, I'm imagining you've got a sort of a forecasting leaderboard uh, in your head um, somewhere given your competitive nature. On forecasting, how long, you know, and I hate to ask you to do a live forecast, but in quotation marks, when do you think normal might return and what do you think that looks like and how how, how forever changed is the world now? Yeah, I think it'll be a new normal. I don't think we'll go back to a time where we don't have to use masks. We don't have to, you know, look at the country list and be like, maybe we shouldn't um, have these people come in for the time being. Um, I think COVID, we're going to be living in a world where COVID is just like the common flu, which means having to have these restrictions remain in place. Um, and I think the biggest change in this new normal will be having to have some documentation of your vaccine status that's going to be able to, you know, have you able to move around both goods and, and, and people. But we don't see, or see this happening until mid-2022 next year. Um, and that may be optimistic given that the Delta, the Delta outbreak and potentially other various strains. But that's sort of the baseline assumption that many of us are using, that it's not until 2022 with some form of vaccine passports that we can gradually reopen our economy to to the outside world. In that new world, in that new normal, do you see any positives that the pandemic has created or, taught, or lessons that it has taught us? I think so. This crisis has opened up, I think, a few opportunities. I think COVID and having to limit face-to-face -face business, what it's done is accelerated our move toward a more digital world. We're always headed toward that digital world, but it has accelerated our move there. Um, we are seeing this in our spending data here at Kiwi Bank. Businesses over the past 18 months have looked at their business models in light of COVID and the always sort of looming threat that a lockdown will have to happen, that they've rejigged it, made a few adjustments and have built up their online presence. And the fact that we didn't see such a significant drop in spending over the past uh, lockdown period was because we, many of us were still online shopping. Um, we were still clicking. We just weren't collecting. Businesses were able to stay open despite their physical stores remaining closed. So this um, crisis has opened up the opportunity, well, has accelerated movement to a digital world. Um, secondly, this pandemic has also, I think, fueled some innovation, which I haven't seen in the data yet, but hopefully it has fueled some innovation into the economy and the way that industries operate Many of our industries were reliant on migrant labour and without that source of labour, they've had to pivot and focus more on investing in labour-saving technology more into capital. Um, and I think that's fueled some innovation into our in our economy. Just an example, I was looking at the asparagus industry yesterday. Wow. 
Yeah. It's, it's that time of year, right? I know. I, I saw it at the supermarket, and so I was like, let's look at this. And it's very interesting the way that they harvest it. You could practically get a, a pair of scissors and just cut it off from the ground. But that's been done by manual labor. But with this pandemic, the asparagus industry has sort of looked at it being and saw this as an opportunity to look into robotic harvesting. And I think some money's being funded and some work is being done to look into using sort of robotic harvesting as, as a way forward. And that's just, you know, some efficiency in, in working place. What are you seeing about the way tourism will change in the in the long term? Because I I felt personally like we'd reached sort of peak numbers. Our, our biggest destinations felt really burdened and overcrowded, like they were really heaving at their breaking point. Do you think the tourism industry will think about different ways of doing doing things once it's able to open up to international travellers again? Uh, potentially. I think you might see, I think you will see a, a big release of pent-up demand from people coming to New Zealand. You know, I think I saw somewhere where Auckland and has been is at the top of the list for people who want to travel once the border is open. So people are wanting this whole um, border closure is just temporary. Um, once we do open up, people are going to swarm to New Zealand as a as a point of relief. Um, so I don't think we'll have a, a big boost in tourism. I think once the borders do open, but um, it's just about having to wait for that time to come. I do very much look forward to going traveling. It's the thing I think I've really started to miss during this uh, most recent lockdown is the idea of going on an international adventure, which leads me to a new free trade deal with the UK. Uh, After 16 months of negotiations, um, we've signed up to uh, eliminate tariffs on New Zealand exports. What impact will that have and, and when do you see it starting to play out? I think that that new free trade deal is great news and it comes at a good time with, you know, the supply chain disruptions we were talking about. Um, But I think it was partly expected post-Brexit. I sort of see it as a rekindling of a relationship we had with the UK back in the 70s. We were sort of their farm, as they called it, to Britain. And I think what we might see from this free trade deal is that our exports to Britain, to, to the UK, will start to climb up the ranks. Right now, they're sort of, sort of sitting at the sixth position, and I think that'll start to climb up, given that there's a sort of um, what they want is we have what they want in terms of, um, you know, the horticulture side and and the d- dairy side. So I think we might see it's good news for our exporters to have that sort of unlimited access to to the UK market, something that we've had before. So we know that is that they are a preferential. And thinking back to much closer at home, um, inflation is much higher than anyone expected. Uh, why is that? Yeah, that la- that latest inflation print was much stronger than anyone had anticipated. Part of it is base fix and play that this time last year, inflation was relatively subdued because COVID had uh, softened demand. 
but a lot a lot of what we're seeing driving prices higher are these supply chain issues coming into effect. Firms are facing rising costs because of capacity constraints and uh, these shipping costs that are just pushing up their their own costs. But it's all taking place at a time when demand in the economy is very strong. So firms are finding that they're able to pass on these rising costs onto consumer prices. And until these supply chain issues sort of settle down, firms will continue to face rising costs and that just means higher prices for for a little bit longer. We don't see inflation peaking until early next year at around 6%. So this is something, while it's transitory in nature, it's the question of how long will it it last. And we saw that paralleled with interest rate rises uh, in October as well. How much pressure are those factors going to put on everyday New Zealanders? It does. Inflation, they say, is is the, the thief in your wallet. It makes the value of what you're, of the money you earn, a little bit less each time. You know, the Reserve Bank, they're mandated to keep prices stable. So we'll start. We'll continue to see, given that the risk of um, this inflation not yet peaking and already how strong it's been, that just reinforces or just confirms that the Reserve Bank will strengthen their conviction to return monetary policy to more neutral settings, which means more hikes to the cash rate, which means interest rates here, both um, lending and deposit rates will continue to rise in the near term until we sort of uh, cool down the the economy. Beyond this quarter, which has been, um, you know, dented by this ongoing lockdown, how optimistic are you about the economic uh, outlook for Aotearoa uh, in spite of things like the supply chain issues? I think it's, I'm pretty um, optimistic about the outlook. It's everything that we're seeing, all these pressures we're seeing are sort of temporary in nature. So it's once those do are resolved, once those supply chain issues are eventually resolved, as economies eventually reopen, there's, there's strong underlying demand in the economy is very strong and that's been a positive I think that's going to see us recover once these pressures um, abate Um, so I think it's just about timing everything we're seeing is transitory it's just about waiting for that time when those those pressures sort of come off we're being asked to exercise a lot of patience at the moment yes yes you know you have a lot of sympathy for Auckland businesses, especially when we might not get into the more freedoms until December. It's just all about having to, you know, it's not till five weeks away. And I hope that, um, you know, some of those businesses have learned over the last two years how to weather some of those pressures. But, you know, like we talked about, it's a um, very tough time for for a lot of small businesses out there. Yeah. A lot of credit has to go to uh, businesses and households. We've had a really good recovery from the last year's lockdown. Our economic output is um, back to pre-COVID levels. It's We've underestimated the adaptability and the resilience of New Zealand businesses and households. They've been the, the shining light in this. And I think that adaptability and response has also prepared us better for the future as well. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, uh, Mary Jo. I learned a lot. I really enjoyed talking to you and I look forward to doing it again in the future. Thank you for having me. Kakite. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. 
Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.